Let's say together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome again, you guys, to our outdoor worship service, uh, complete with barking dogs and uh, hot Florida rays of sun. Um, hopefully we'll be able to enter in here tonight. Um, as we've been doing these uh, Sunday evening gatherings, uh, I've been taking the opportunity to tell silly stories uh, about Avila and Nora, uh, which I used to do when they were babies for the college students, uh, just, just as a little bit of an icebreaker. But I actually have a story tonight uh, that is relevant to what I'm gonna say. So I, I am sorry, I just wanna say on the front end that this story has relevance to what I'm gonna speak about. I apologize for that. Um, we'll go back to the random stories next week maybe, um, but, uh, but for tonight, this one's gonna be relevant. So um, this, this is a story that came from uh, quite a few years ago. Um, Avila, uh, my, my oldest daughter, she's about to turn 14, but when she was four and a half years old, um, uh, I was about to, we were about to go to this inner varsity gathering and one of the things that I always looked forward to doing at these InterVarsity gatherings is to play basketball with the other staff and also to school the students a little bit and everything. Uh, but uh, so um, uh, I was uh, a little bit depressed because we're only a few days away from leaving and um, my wrist was in terrible shape. It had been hurting me for several weeks and um, I was trying to cut vegetables in, in the kitchen and I couldn't even hold the knife straight. So I tried to hold it with the other hand and I couldn't even hold the vegetable straight. Um, because my wrist was just in such pain and I, I started uh, uh, jokingly complaining to Carissa. I said, you know, um, man, you know, my, my wrist is hurting me. Uh, I'm going to need you to pray for me because otherwise I'm not going to be able to play basketball. And uh, Carissa, in a very snarky way, said back to me, um, well, uh, you know, I, I don't know about that. I don't know if I have the faith for that. <laughs> and, uh, and then Avila, who at the time was four and a half, she said, um, I have the faith. I said, you do? She said, yeah, I have the faith. And, uh, and I said, okay, um, well, why don't, how about I'll come over by you? Why don't you lay your hand on daddy's wrist and, and, uh, and just pray and ask God to make it, um, and make it better? And she said, okay. And so uh, she started to pray. And um, all of a sudden, you could just see, Chris and I were watching her, like the Holy Spirit fall on her. And her countenance changed, and the way she prayed was a way that I'd never seen her pray before. And she's kind of pacing underneath the kitchen table and praying and coming back and putting her hand on, on my wrist. And she goes, God, I pray that your Lord, that your Lord would come down, that your Lord would come down and come into my daddy's wrist. Thank you for healing his wrist. Amen. And I was like looking at her like, well, what? <laughs> like, who is this four-year-old? And uh, I was like, thank you, baby. That was really powerful. So I didn't actually think much of it, but I just went back into the kitchen and started cutting vegetables again. And I was like, what? Like, all of a sudden I'm cutting vegetables and I'm not feeling any pain whatsoever. And uh, I start really uh, circulating my wrist, like exaggerating. I'm like, Avila, like, 
I don't, I don't feel any pain. And she's like, I healed him. <laughs> and I was like, well, baby, God healed me, but he used you. He used your prayers. Um, and, uh, and, and she ended up praying for me again. It was a really uh, powerful story um, and a, a family miracle. It's the only time I, I've, uh, I've asked for people to pray for me for physical healing many times in my life. Never have I received instantaneous physical healing. Um, but as Avila was praying for my wrist that day, um, I, I honestly sensed what I've heard so many people talk about, which is I just sensed this energy around my wrist and it was tingly and it was cold and I could feel God healing my wrist. It was incredible. It was incredible testimony to me at the time um, that God, uh, I, I don't know why he doesn't always do it, but God still does the kinds of things that we see him doing in the Bible. God still heals today. The Holy Spirit's still at work. All right, so we've been doing this uh, three-week uh, three series. We skipped a week um, on incarnation's core values. And uh, um, our values, our core values as a church, remind us who we are and what are the things that we care about. So that's, that's what your core values should do as a church. They should remind you as we kind of go over these, like, who are we? Who, who is it that God's calling us to be? And, and what are the things that we care so much about? Now, these things aren't altogether unique to incarnation because if they're rooted in Scripture, they should be a part of the church's core values. Amen? Um, but, but these are um, things that um, as, as the Bodos and Halls were meeting for nine months before we came down here, praying together, searching the Scriptures, these are things we kept coming back to. And as we met with our core team here in Tallahassee before we planted this church for nine or ten months, um, and we're praying and studying the scriptures. These are the core values that we kept coming back to. So there's, there's 10 of these. And in the first talk, week one, we talked about the glory of God and cross-shaped love, that these are kind of foundational values. Then last time we talked about dependence, shared mission, lost and least, and beauty. And then these are the key ones tonight, these four tonight. Um, diversity, authenticity, discipleship of the mind, and three streams. And we'll get more into three streams later. We're talking about uh, three streams, evangelical, sacramental, and charismatic. So over the course of these Sunday meetings in the Sandlot, uh, we've decided to split these 10 values up into this three-week interactive series. And tonight is the third and final installment of this. So we're going to talk about diversity, authenticity, discipleship of the mind, and three streams. Let's say those together. Diversity, authenticity, discipleship of the mind, and three streams. So before I dive into the teaching, um, I want to start by asking you to turn to your neighbor, and I'm going to give you two minutes for a quick warm-up question. Uh, which of these values do you have the most questions about? And maybe what are some of those questions? So diversity, authenticity, discipleship of the mind and three streams which of these values do you have the most questions about and what are some of those questions all right let's come back together and um, and so hopefully some of the questions you asked will will address a little bit tonight but if not hold on to them and, and uh, continue to discuss them together with each other afterward um, we're going to start um, with uh, value number seven of our ten values which is uh, diversity now, um, this is currently, a, obviously, a very hot-button um, topic, a very hot-button issue in the media, in politics, in entertainment. Uh, 
uh, we talk a lot about words like representation, right? And, uh, and about, you know, I, I just remember when I was about in middle school, it started to be the case that all the worksheets we would do in school all of a sudden started to have names like Roberto and stuff like that, not just Robert anymore, right? And uh, you started to see this change happen. Um, but I, I think it's really important to say uh, that God has cared about uh, multi-ethnicity and diversity uh, for a lot longer than any of our worldly institutions. So this isn't just some sort of like new trendy wave that we're trying to ride as a church. Uh, diversity in the body of Christ is a biblical issue, it's a gospel issue, and it's a mission issue. Um, from a biblical perspective, there's so much we could say. Um, we could be here all night and then some uh, to talk about diversity in the Bible. We could, we could start at the beginning of the Bible and work our way forward, right? The beginning of the Bible, which says that there's one creator, and he created all people in the image of God. Every ethnicity male and female. So we all, in some ways, reflect the image and glory of our Creator. So any doctrine of multi-ethnicity or diversity actually starts right on the first page of the Bible. So you could start there and move forward. Or you could start at the end of the Bible and look backwards, right? So in the book of Revelation, um, specifically chapter 7, but there's several places in the book of Revelation, the church is uh, pictured as this multi-ethnic a multinational, multilingual body that's worshiping uh, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth, and they're casting their crowns before the Lord, and you see this sense of diversity in heaven, right? The church is not just, it's not homogenous. It doesn't look like one ethnic group. It doesn't look like one age group, right? It doesn't look like one socioeconomic group. It's so diverse. Well, when we pray, as we just prayed in the Lord's Prayer, uh, a few moments ago, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying, make it down here like it is up there. Make it down here like it's going to be up there, right? So, so actually to see that diversity in the end of all things makes us say, oh, that's how it's going to be. That's how God wants it to be. So you can start from the beginning and work forward, or you can start from the back and work, uh, start from the end and work backwards, right? We see that value all over the place. So diversity is a Bible issue from beginning to end. Diversity is also a gospel issue. A few weeks ago, um, I did this, uh, the, I went down this long cul-de-sac in a sermon, uh, and I was talking about um, how issues of diversity and multi-ethnicity is the only issue we see in the New Testament that actually caused two apostles to be divided from one another. Two apostles in the New Testament, after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit had fallen, Right? We, we noted in Galatians 2.14 that Paul confronts Peter to his face, right? It says he confronted him to his face because he stood condemned because his actions were not in step with the gospel. That's what he says. He didn't just say because his actions were, you know, immoral or they were off the mark a little bit. He said they were not in step with the gospel. And what were Peter's actions in that moment? In that moment, Peter's actions were... Well, he was hanging out with the uncircumcised Gentiles before some of the, the very culturally Jewish people came from Jerusalem that thought like, hey, that's not right. That's weird. Like, you're not supposed to do that as a Jewish man. You're supposed to stand separate. You're not supposed to have fellowship across ethnicities like this. And Peter felt pressured by their voice, and he separated himself from these Greek-speaking Gentiles, right? 
And, uh, and it says that even Barnabas was led astray. Even Paul's missionary partner Barnabas was led astray by Peter's hypocrisy. And so Paul confronts Peter to his face. He says, you stand condemned. You're not acting in accordance with the gospel. Well, what, why, why is Paul saying this? Why is Paul saying you're acting not in accordance with the gospel? We say, well, isn't the gospel about God reconciling human beings to himself? How is that contrary to the gospel? Well, because God actually doesn't just reconcile us as individuals. He reconciles us as a people. We are God's people, and God's people is multi-ethnic, multilingual, multinational. We're not restricted to any homogenous uh, you know, group. We're not restricted to any socioeconomic group. And so when we're reconciled to God, we're reconciled not just us to God, but one to another, right? So we talked about how there's a vertical dimension of the gospel, our reconciliation with God, that's the vertical beam of the cross, and then our reconciliation one to another, that's the horizontal beam of the cross. Both of those are part of the gospel, and we see both of those talked about quite a bit in the New Testament. I hope for some of you who maybe haven't had that much teaching on this issue, you if you've been around incarnation now for a few years, you're like, oh, wow, I actually see this in the scriptures more than I thought. As we've been going through Romans, we see it more than we thought. How much Paul is saying that the gospel is the thing that reconciles these Jewish and Gentile believers to be one people of God. Because there's, you know, God is not polygamous. There's, there's not multiple brides, right? There's just one bride. And, and God has made one bride out of his multi-ethnic people. So, um, diversity is a gospel issue. It's a Bible issue. It's a gospel issue. And then finally, diversity is a mission issue. Now, like I said, I could talk a lot about this. And when I say diversity is a mission issue, you might think that I'm going to say something about the Great Commission, about how when Jesus sent out his apostles, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, right? Yes, of course we see diversity there. It, it was actually a multi-ethnic uh, multicultural mission from the beginning. Go and make a family for me. Go and make disciples for me from all nations. And man, it, the church uh, tore down these dividing walls of hostility that had stood between people for generations. Never had they been torn down. Never had these people groups hung out together. Never have they thought, this is my brother, this is my sister. That's what happened after the gospel. But there's actually many other places in the New Testament where we find out that diversity is actually a mission issue. In fact, in, uh, in, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John, if you uh, uh, look at the Gospel of John chapter 17 uh, and verse 21, Jesus prays, quote, that we all may be one. He prays for the church that we all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you so they may also be in us. So in the same way that the Trinity is a unity amongst, amongst diversity, in the same way, he, he's saying, I want them to have the unity. I want my people to have the unity, Father, that you and I have. So the eternal unity between the Father and the Son is what Jesus is praying for his diverse people to have on earth. And then here, here's the key reason that Jesus gives for why he's praying for this oneness. He says, quote, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And that sounds odd to us. How, well, how's, how, how will the world believe that the Father sent the Son of God into the world to be our Savior? Um, how, how, how does diversity play into that? Because you see people gathered together that would have never gathered together. 
right? You see these, these barriers broken down that had never been broken down before, and you say, there must be something incredible going on. There must be something miraculous going on here. This is what uh, Brenda Salter McNeil calls a credible witness. She has a book called A Credible Witness, calling the church to multi-ethnicity because she says it actually gives potency to our witness. When you see people hanging out, and, and they're not just hanging out in the same groups that they would naturally hang out in. They're calling somebody their brother or somebody their sister who is so different from them. This is not just about ethnicity, so different from them personality-wise, right? So different from them in terms of ethnicity, so different from them socioeconomically and saying like, this is my brother, this is my sister, this is family to me, right? There's something miraculous about that kind of community. And Jesus says that when we have the kind of oneness that he's praying for, the world will believe that the Father has sent the Son. And I actually think that one of the reasons why um, the church in the U.S. has lost some credibility to our witness is because there have been key times when we've been called to, to stand for one another. And when we failed to do that, the sort of credibility has really gone down, right? Now, I, I do, I, I am thankful, I am grateful that when it comes to abolition, when it comes to civil rights, actually, our biggest heroes are actually Christians. And I think it's really important that we not forget that. Most of our heroes and most of our biggest heroes are actually Christians. But at the same time, there's so much lukewarmness, so much of a, you know, a, a hesitancy to embrace the multi-ethnic call in the New Testament that it actually caused our sort of credibility to go down in our culture. Don't you think that's happened? Don't you think that's happened? Isn't it so much easier to walk into a church and see homogeny than it is to walk into like a cafeteria in the high school? That's a scandal, guys. I mean, don't get me wrong. There wouldn't be that diversity in the cafeteria if it wasn't for the gospel. Like that is a direct result. Even in the secular world, it, they're, they're cashing a check that they didn't know that Jesus paid 2,000 years ago. But at the same time, the church should not be lagging behind in this. We should be leading in this, amen? So diversity is a Bible issue, it's a, um, a mission issue, and it's a gospel issue. So that's the seventh value. The eighth value is authenticity. Now, authenticity is um, essentially the opposite of hypocrisy. That's why we think it's really important. Um, nobody likes fake people. Actually, the Greek word for hypocrite literally means play actor or pretender. And, uh, and actually, Jesus is the first one we have in recorded history to use the word hypocrite as a criticism of the falsely religious. We don't actually see it in any literature before Jesus. So, so actually, authenticity mattered a great deal for Jesus. It wasn't just about the outside of the cup. It was about the inside of the cup for Jesus, right? And I think it's easy, especially easy, for religious people to be inauthentic, right? To come across as sanctimonious, making much of ourselves for show, right? Or, or to be falsely humble, making little of ourselves for show, right? Either way, it's inauthentic. Our goal should be the same. Uh, we're, not, we're not trying to justify ourselves or feel justified in the eyes of others. That's works righteousness. Our goal is to say our status, our identity has been made secure because of what Jesus has done. And therefore, 
I'm able to actually be myself, right? I, I don't have to keep up appearances. We read today in Romans 3, 27 and 28, then what becomes of our boasting? You think there's a boasting problem in our culture today? Good grief. I mean, I, I, I don't even, I can't, I can't think of a time in my life where we've become more comfortable with people boasting. Boasting about themselves. We think it's like funny or like a good thing. It's not a good thing, guys. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. So our boasting is excluded because we didn't earn our salvation. So we don't have anything to brag about. And then verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, some people criticize Martin Luther. They say this idea of sola fide, faith alone, that's not really in the Bible. Paul never says faith alone. Well, actually, he does say faith alone in this verse. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So if works of the law aren't a part of the equation, it's by faith alone. Amen. So in the man-made religious systems of the world, there's always going to be pressure to try to present yourself to be something that you're not or to draw attention to something great about yourself. But the gospel that our loving creator has accepted us through the finished work of the cross, that message frees us to be honest before God and before men, to be authentic. Amen? There's this great chart in the book Centered Church by Tim Keller where he contrasts religion and the gospel. And there's a, you can see there's, there's quite a lot of contrast that he makes here. And I just want to read a few of them for you, right? He says, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. You see the difference there? Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That's also what an unhealthy household says. Right? I'm never going to be accepted unless I meet your standards, unless I make you proud. How can I make you proud? How can I measure up? Right? The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. The gospel says, I obey God in order to get God to delight and resemble him. Religion says, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am, so I must look down on those I perceive to be lazy or immoral, I disdain and feel superior to others, right? That, that's what that system is going to necessarily lead to. The gospel says my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, including me, right? That's where my identity comes from. And so only by sheer grace I am what I am, so I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. I have no inner need to win arguments. Right? It doesn't come from that. So our gospel identity is so much different than a religious identity. And our gospel identity frees us to be able to be authentic. I think one of the powerful things about what John was preaching about today is not just that Jesus forgives us. You remember in his analogy where um, Mi Miriam forgave him, right, for, for breaking her iPad, right, in the children's sermon. But she's still upset at him, right, and she still has bad feelings towards him. But with the gospel, the wrath of God, all of God's annoyance, all of everything that God in his own righteousness, in his own holiness could have against us, 
is propitiated through Christ so that when actually God's like, oh, I like you, come closer to me, right? I want you to draw near. So that's different. Like we, we think, well, God forgives me, but he's basically disappointed in me. No, like according to the gospel, what we're offered in Jesus is full, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased kind of sonship, kind of daughtership, amen? So we, we're, we're liberated by the gospel to be authentic. The ninth value is discipleship of the mind. Now, Jesus taught that the greatest commandment, we say it in our liturgy every week, is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And um, this word doesn't show up in all the Gospels, but it does in a couple places. Uh, And Jesus actually adds the word mind to his quotation from Deuteronomy. Now, it's not really true to say that he adds it, because uh, in the Hebrew, the word for heart actually includes what, what we as Westerners would think of both heart and mind. And so when the gospel writers are quoting Jesus, they want to make sure that the kind of Greco-Roman world doesn't miss this, that we're actually supposed to love God with all of our intellect. Amen? So often, uh, I think in the media, and especially um, on college campuses, uh, Christians are portrayed as people who have essentially thrown our brains in the trash can, right? Um, but, you know, I, I've actually, I, I don't know what your experience has been, but um, my experience has been the opposite. Um, the sharpest thinkers I know, most of the sharpest thinkers I know um, are Christians, and many of them are converts who would tell you that they didn't actually start to uh, become more intellectual, start to make more sense in their speaking, and become more careful in their thinking until after their conversion. I think of a, a really good friend of mine who dropped out of high school. I think, I can't remember if he dropped out when we were in 10th grade or 11th grade. Came to know the Lord a few years later and basically learned how to read by reading the Bible. And uh, I still, it still just baffles me today. I talked to this guy on the phone. He doesn't have a, a high school education. He has a GED. Right? I, I talk to him on the phone, and he's just such a sharp thinker. And I'll ask him stuff about our culture. I'll ask him to kind of analyze what's going on in the church today. And he's just, he's just got an incisive mind, and that's something that Jesus did in him. I think of somebody like, uh, like Tanner Trotter, who goes to this church. He was recently um, uh, approved as a, as a postulant uh, for the diaconate, which is, which is really a um, cool thing. So you guys can congratulate him for that. But... Um, I remember Tanner would tell you that until he came to know Jesus, um, he just, he was not a very careful thinker. His thinking was very muddled. And then you see, you saw him when he came to know Jesus, which we got to see during his years as an university student. And he just started to um, think uh, not just uh, uh, in, in just sort of like uh, two dimensions, but all of a sudden he started to think three dimensionally. And, you know, he switched his major to philosophy and just became somebody that people would come to for advice, right? Um, That's something that Jesus did in his life. He brought him through a discipleship of the mind. And so um, uh, while I've definitely encountered some strands of Christianity that are anti-intellectual, I think think it's also true that uh, Christianity presents us with the most integrated and expansive worldview— on offer. And this calls us to think more deeply and to reason more clearly. And as a church, um, we want to embrace that and not just be anti-intellectual, not be anti-science, not be anti-reason, 
but to hold those things under the authority of Scripture and say, how can we use reason? How can we use science? How can we use these things under the authority of Scripture to understand God more deeply, to understand our world more deeply, to understand one another more deeply? All right, number 10. And uh, um, the 10th the value is three streams. And you can see um, that we've actually smuggled in three values in this last value. There's actually 10 values. Um, now, um, I, I want to ask you to do something real quick, which is take your phone out um, and uh, go to Incarnation's website, incarnationtallahassee.org. So pull that up on your phone. And um, I want you to click the About tab. And then click the What We Believe tab. Now, if you've never read that section, you should care more about doctrine. <laughs> but I encourage you to open that up, scroll to the bottom to what it says about three streams. Okay? And we're not going to read these out right now. But I just want you to hold that. Maybe I'll have somebody read out um, one or one or two of these descriptions in a moment. Um, I want to do this last one in a little bit more of a conversational way. So what do we mean by three streams? Um, I want to open it up to a bit of a discussion. Uh, start with comments and then take questions. So uh, we talk about three streams, evangelical, sacramental, and charismatic. Or we will say, you know, Protestant, Catholic, and Pentecostal, or Spirit-filled, or something like that, right? So these are, these are three terms uh, by which we mean uh, the same thing. And I want to ask you, um, not, not what you think CNN or Fox News thinks that an evangelical is, but what do you think are some of the defining uh, characteristics of the evangelical stream in Christianity? So just where you're at, if you if you got a got a thought about that, what are some of the definitive characteristics of the evangelical stream in Christianity? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Bible based. So yes, the authority of Scripture is really really key for evangelicals. What else? What else? Mission oriented. Mission oriented. Yeah. Uh, evangelical, uh, we're evangelistic, right? So we, we care about sharing the good news. What else? Yeah, the importance of personal conversion, right? It's in evangelical spaces that you'll find people sharing testimonies because we don't just say, well, I'm a Christian because my grandmother was a Christian. Or I'm a Christian just because I was baptized when I was a baby or something like that. We say, I'm a Christian because I believe the gospel and am being transformed by God. We might not all have a, I was in the gutter and then God saved me out of the gutter kind of story. But we expect evangelicals to have stories about what is the difference that God made in your life, right? So it's uh, Bible-based, mission-based, uh, uh, emphasis on personal conversion, and also emphasis on the message of the cross, a really big emphasis in the evangelical stream. Um, now, uh, what about what about um, sacramental? What what do you think about when you, when we talk about being the sa sacramental stream or the little C Catholic stream? What are some of the things we care about? Yeah, Aaron. Uh, liturgy. Liturgy. Yeah. So so we 
we say that the church, uh, not just in the present, but in the past, has sort of a vote on our worship and on our prayers and on our doctrine, right? And so our liturgy is shaped by people who were alive generations before us. And so that shapes how we worship today. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Yeah, the power of symbolism. I think that's great. I mean, you could say um, the the um, the Little C Catholic uh, stream or the sacramental stream is um, it's a uh, it's a stream that says matter matters, right? So that like tangible things and and space and uh, crosses and symbols and liturgical colors, all these things are are things that that can be used to help us grow in our relationship with God. Beauty is another thing that, that can be really important for us in the church. Yeah, what else? What else from the sacramental? Yeah. Like a communion? Yeah, communion. Exactly. So um, under normal circumstances, right, we have communion every week. And, and we don't worry too much about whether, whether we're going to uh, just, it's going to just start to be something that we're sick of or something that's just rote. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but it's amazing to me how oftentimes we'll have people come to this church who were never a part of a sacramental church before, and they start to say, you know, my favorite time in service is communion. And now I'm ruined because I try to go to another church, and if we don't have communion, I'm like, well, we, did, we, didn't, really, we didn't really have church, right? There's something about meeting God through the bread broken, through the wine poured out, right? Sacramental, you know, we take very seriously baptism. We don't just say, say the sinner's prayer and you're good. We say, be baptized in the name of Jesus, right? Die with him and rise with him, right? So we care about the sacramental aspects of the church. Yeah, John. Yeah, so Pastor John is saying um, it's, that, it's that historical sensibility that we're a part of the great tradition. In some ways, um, the, the little C Catholic, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church is, is the most democratic. Uh, it's just that we, we give the dead a vote too. <laughs> And we say, what have they always, what has the church always taught about this doctrine, right? And we want to read the best of what the church has already said about this. That's in many ways what the creeds, the confessions, the catechisms um, are, right? Um, it, it also, it also there's, that, there's that sensitivity to say, we're not trying to define what the church is, like out of thin air in this generation, when we talk about the 10 values of incarnation, if they're not rooted in what the church has always been called to be, we'll say there's actually something really wrong there, right? So, um, so to be rooted in the great tradition is part of what it means to be sacramental, part of what it means to be Catholic Christians, and to have that sensibility that we're a part of a family that's been going for generations, right? Um, all right, now let's talk about the third stream. So we talked about evangelical. We talked about sacramental. What about charismatic? What do we mean by that? What do we mean by the charismatic stream? I pray that your Lord would come down and come into my daddy's wrist. Right? Right? We, we believe the Holy Spirit is still doing stuff in the world today, that miracles still happen, right? That, that God is personal. It's interesting because a lot of... Um, traditions that wouldn't define themselves as charismatic, they might even define themselves contrary to that. They'll, but they'll still ask you the question, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, when you ask the question, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? You're asking, do you have a relationship with the Spirit of God? 
right? Because it's not the embodied Lord Jesus still walking among us that we have a relationship with, and you don't have a relationship, like a personal relationship with the biblical text. You have a personal relationship with a person, and it's through the Spirit of Christ that we can ask that question. We do care. Yeah, I want to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But we have that through the Holy Spirit. And that's why we say at Incarnation, there's no such thing as a non-charismatic Christian. Right? Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. That's part of what it means to be the Holy Spirit, is to be regenerated. Is to have God living in you, and you're living in God. And He is bringing love and joy and peace into your life. Right? He's, he's giving you power for ministry. He's reminding you of that relationship that's so important. Right? What else? What else about the charismatic stream? Yeah, Irma. Yeah. Yeah, there's an emphasis on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, she said. Amen. Amen. So there are many lists, lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. Some of them sound sort of more miraculous to us than others, right? Like the gift of miracles or the gift of prophecy or the gift of healing. Um, those things might sound um, more miraculous to us, but just as miraculous is if the third person of God, the, the, uh, of the Holy Trinity, comes into us and helps us to be good teachers or to be good leaders or to have mercy on people, right? All of these things are actually expressions of gifts that God is giving his church from on high for edification, right? I encourage you to, um, to mine that part of our website um, after you leave. Um, what do we mean by three streams? There's actually a very substantial answer to that question. And I actually think if we just know that value for us as incarnation, you'll learn most of what you need to know about incarnation as a church. When you say that we're a three streams church, we're evangelical, Catholic, charismatic, like, that should tell you most of what you actually need to know about incarnation. So I encourage you to read that more on your own. Um, to be clear, when we talk about our values, we're talking about the values of incarnation. But we don't think for a moment that what God is passionate about is about the kingdom of incarnation, Tallahassee. No, God is passionate about his own kingdom, about the kingdom of God. And the extent to which we overlap with that, the extent to which we're faithful in that, the extent to which we walk in that, is us walking in these rooted biblical historical values. And we're not seeking God's blessing on some new out of thin air thing that God never thought of before. We're saying, what does it mean to be faithful to how God sees the church? And what scripture defines as the values we should have. And what scripture, what, what are the parameters that scripture gives on the mission that we should really care about and topics like that. All right, so, so that's it for week three. Diversity, authenticity, discipleship of the mind, and three streams. 